I think it would, um, it would be true to say, wouldn't it, that there are some causes that are just hopeless, aren't there? I mean, when we were young, one of the things that Sue liked about me was my hair. And, um, and sometimes she wishes that I still had some. Okay, sadly, however much she wishes, okay, that's not going to change anything, is it? Or take the English and sport. Okay, every year, we really, be we really believe we are going to win. Okay, at cricket or rugby or football, that it's finally coming home. Okay, where does it go home to? Germany, of all places. I think the English are a nation of hopeless causes. Okay, sometimes, sometimes when you're struggling with stuff that you wish would happen, your own hopes that aren't happening, okay, sometimes it requires the suffering of others to put our own hopes into perspective, doesn't it? I mean, just look at the people who, which this passage is talking about today. Diseases with no cure and the death of a child. Okay, in comparison to that, our hopes... Our, even our dashed hopes, they can seem trivial in comparison, can't they? And yet, I think, as you look at this woman who comes in need of healing and at Jairus who comes in need of a miracle, as we look at them and their hopes, I think we can begin to understand why we hope for what we hope for and where those hopes can ultimately be satisfied. Okay, first point, the search for shalom. Okay, the search for shalom. Now, Jairus, the uh, synagogue ruler, and the woman who is bleeding, they are at opposite ends of the social spectrum, aren't they? I mean, or at the social ladder. And um, socially, they are about as different as you can be. And yet, as Mark tells their stories, if you look, there are some remarkable similarities. Okay, Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. How long has this woman been bleeding for? For 12 years. She has been bleeding for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. And both of them, both the, the, the woman who is bleeding and Jairus' daughter, are female in a patriarchal world. And as Jesus deals with both of them, he is rebuked by other people in both cases. Firstly, by the disciples and then by the mourners. Then he heals them both by touch. They're both unclean, but he touches them. And in both of them, Jesus says that faith is crucial. So there are a number of these similarities. And yet I think there is one similarity that is so obvious that you could almost miss it. Okay, they both need healing. Jairus wants his little girl to live. And the woman, she wants her body to be made whole. So for all of their social differences, these two both want the world to be put right. And if you think about it, it's what we all want. It's why you react the way you do when you see what is going on in the world. You want the world put right. It's what we're all hoping for. Whether that is to feel fulfilled in your work, or in your search for a partner who you could share life with, or for your relational problems when you want them to be sorted, or when you've got a loved one and you want them to get well. 
What you are longing for is for the world to be made right. And the Old Testament has a word for that world made right. It's shalom, peace. Okay, that's not just the end of arguments, not just the absence of arguments, not just the absence of war. It's not some kind of fragile ceasefire between the way you wish the world was and the reality of the way the world is. Shalom is a peace in which everything flourishes, in which everything that you put your hand to prospers, a world in which everything bears fruit. It is a state in which you and everything around you, your soul, your relationships, your work, flourishes and thrives. It's what we're all looking for. In all of our activity, in all of our getting, in what we spend our money on, in, in our trying out the next thing, in our chasing after this thing, in, in how we search for uh, friends or for meaning, in how we use power and influence, in our fear of death, and in our anxiety about the future, it's all because deep down, we want shalom. We want the world as it should be, and we're searching for it. The problem is, as Mark shows us here, the world is not as it should be. Second point then, unwanted invaders. Okay, look at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And socially, Jairus is at the top, isn't he? He is at the top of the tree socially. He's male in a patriarchal world, and he's a synagogue ruler, which means likely he's wealthy, he's a man of influence in his community. Okay, but as those great philosophers, the Beatles sang, okay, money can't buy you love, can it? Money can't buy you love, but neither can it, buy, neither can it guard you against heartbreak. You know, money, social standing, influence can't guard you against heartbreak. Verses 22 and 23. Seeing him, Jesus, Jairus, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. My little daughter, my darling daughter, she's dying. She's in extremis. She is at the point where every second counts. Money can't buy you love, and it can't buy you security from these things. As J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, wrote, death comes to palaces as well as cottages, to landlords as well as to tenants, to rich as well as to the poor. What you dread comes even to the successful and well-connected, to the good and the respected, and even, as here with Jairus, to those who are deeply religious, who take their faith seriously. Okay, but look what he asks Jesus, verse 23. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may, so that she may be made well and live. Okay, death is casting its shadow over his daughter, isn't it? Like as in that responsive reading from Isaiah 25, the, gloom, the shadow of gloom, the shadow of death, has stretched out over his family. It is slowly, steadily, relentlessly approaching. 
and he wants it banished. And in its place, he wants healing to come. He wants the light of life to dispel the darkness of death. He wants his daughter to live. What does he want? He wants the world to be as it should be. He wants shalom. But of course, coming to Jesus carries a risk for Jairus, doesn't it? He, I mean, we rarely, I mean, if you notice, as you go through the Gospels, we rarely get told the names of the people who Jesus interacts with. But here we do. We know his name. And that is probably because Peter, whose memoirs Mark is recording, he probably knew Jairus. Because this is probably happening in Capernaum, Peter's hometown. And if that is the case, then Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue where Jesus has already been attacked and accused. Okay, so just think about it. What will Jairus's colleagues, what will his social circle make of Jairus kneeling before this man whom they all despise? So why does he do it? Because he's desperate. Now, one of my daughters uh, spent some time working in a restaurant that was visited by some minor celebrities. Okay? And she says, celebrities, they're the worst. Okay? They're, they're the worst customers. Because there is something about fame. There's something about having a crowd of adoring fans that makes you think that you are a cut above the rest. And Jesus has that crowd of adoring fans, doesn't he? Verse 21, a great crowd has gathered around Jesus. So being a celebrity, Jesus could have played the celebrity card, couldn't he? Uh, do you know what? I'm really busy right now. I think you're going to have to, you know, Jairus, I think you're going to have to make an appointment with my PR, my, my personal secretary, or my PA. Or he could have sent one of his disciples, couldn't he? John, he's, he's good at this. I'll send John. Mark tells us simply, verse 24, and Jesus went with him. A desperate father and Jesus goes with him. He needs no arm twisting. He needs no persuading. Jesus sees this man's desperation and he enters his world of suffering. Okay, except in that great crowd, verse 25, there was a woman and Mark lays out how this woman's life has spiraled downwards and slowly unraveled, verses 25 and 26. A woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. So if Jairus is at the top, where's she? She's at the bottom, isn't she? Jairus is named. This woman has no name. What she has is her shame. He has influence. She has nothing. Her health has gone. Her money has gone. She lives in a perpetual state of ritual uncleanness. So her social network has gone. She has been as untouchable, or she has been untouchable for as long as Jairus has been able to hold and cuddle and touch his little daughter. And if her body is bleeding away, so too is her hope. And if Jairus is desperate, so is she. Except his desperation is acute. Hers is born of years 
of dashed hopes. Maybe this doctor will do it. Maybe if I pay this person. Maybe if I go there. Maybe if I do this. Her desperation is born out of years of dashed hopes and broken promises, of trying anything and spending everything to try and get better. I think in that she's a picture of us all, isn't she? Because we are all in search of a life where we can feel healthy, where we can feel right, where we can feel emotionally, psychologically, physically well, a life where we're thriving. And we try one thing after another to try and find that. But like her, our hopes can be repeatedly dashed. We think, hey, that move or that new job or that relationship or that purchase, that will fill the hole. And it doesn't. Okay, but just like Jairus, she knows that Jesus is the answer to her need. Verses 27 and 28. She'd heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. You see, it's not just Jairus who risks by coming to Jesus. Jairus could approach Jesus face to face. She approaches him from behind because she's unclean. She's not supposed to be out, is she? She's certainly not supposed to be out in that crowd. So above all, she needs to remain hidden. She needs to stay anonymous. But then it happens. Third and last point. A new day dawns. Verse 29. She touches him and immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Amazing, isn't it? What doctors couldn't do, and what spending all that she had could not buy, Jesus does, simply by her touching her, him. And it didn't cost her a penny. But she still had to do something, didn't she? To get well. To feel that health in her body. She still had to do something. She had to come. She had heard, but if she had stayed at home, she would never have been healed. She had to come. She had to reach out and touch. You see, you and I, we can recognize that we need healing. You can recognize that things in your life or your relationship are not as they should be or as we may want them to be. And you can spend emotional energy or financial resources, or just time in search of something that will fix it, or in search of something that will satisfy you. Or you can hear, maybe from a friend, that Jesus really can make a difference in this situation in your life, just like she heard probably from her friend. But in your heart, you still stay at home, and you don't act on it. Whereas what this woman shows us is that we need to hear and come and reach out and touch and find the grace of Jesus that is as free and fulfilling and as healing as this woman's healing was. But what she teaches us, what Jesus shows us, is that you've got to come with faith. You see, plenty of other people were touching him that day, weren't they? 
It's why when he realizes that power has gone out of him and he demands, hey, who touched me? The disciples say incredulously, verse 31, Jesus, come on. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Except Jesus knows that one person, one person in that great throng of people has reached out and touched him with faith. Someone there knew, he knows, someone there believed, he's the one I need, and reached out and touched now, the problem is that loads of people crowd around Jesus. Okay, you can talk about him. You can debate him. You can even come to church and sing about him. And there's a sense in which you are touching him. But are you touching him with faith? Do you know, like this woman knew, he is my only hope. Because it's that that makes a difference between her touch and everyone else's. And look how he responds. Because despite the disciples saying, oh, come on, Jesus, look at the crowd. Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Now, why does he insist on identifying her? It's interesting, isn't it? Why does he insist on that? Because while she wants a cure, he wants something more than that for her. She wants a cure. He wants relationship. She wants to be made well. He wants to know her and for her to know him. He wants to bring her out of her anonymity, out from the fringes and the back of the crowd. Because as one commentator has said, Christianity is not about getting our needs met. It's about knowing Christ and being known by him. And in verse 34, Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter. It's a story of daughters, isn't it? What Jairus' daughter is to him, this woman is to Jesus. Daughter. And he says to her, Go in peace. And almost certainly he's using the Hebrew blessing, leki le shalom, go in shalom. What she and all of us are searching for and paying for or hoping for, he gives her. Because he hasn't just restored her physically, has he? In taking away her uncleanness, he has restored her to community. And, she, and once again, she can find her place in God's people as a dearly loved child of God. That's what Jesus does for her. It's what he does for all of us. And yet, she's taken up vital time, hasn't she? And when a child is an extremist, when their internal organs and systems are collapsing, every minute counts. And Jesus has eaten up those minutes talking to this woman. What must Jairus have been stood there thinking? Because he knows that death is stalking his household. But what's he been stood there thinking? Jesus, please. I mean, please, can you talk to her later? She's been bleeding for 12 years. I haven't got 12 minutes to waste. Jesus, please. 
Interesting, isn't it? Jesus is in, is in no rush. Have you ever experienced that? Whether it is letting a storm hit its peak before calming it, as we saw last week, whether it is keeping a desperate father waiting, there are times when the timing of God seems very different to our own. And as I say, maybe you are experiencing that at the moment. And you wish God would do it now. And he's not. Jesus has entered Jairus' world of suffering. And yet there's no panic. But then comes what Jairus must have dreaded, verse 35. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, when you're a medical student, you get taught how to break bad news. And you've got to be clear, sadly. You've got to just say it as it is, and you've got to leave no room for misunderstanding. Tragically, these guys get it right, don't they? Sadly, textbook, textbook stuff. Your daughter is dead. And yet, having got that much right, the next bit, they get totally wrong because they draw a wrong conclusion. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Why? Because he can't do anything about death. Jesus overhears and says to Jairus, verse 36, do not fear, only believe. What's Jairus got to do? What's the guy at the top of the tree got to do? He's got to do what the woman at the bottom of the tree has done. He's got to believe. He's got to trust Jesus. In this moment, Jairus has got to shift what he's looking at, hasn't he? If he only looks at the material facts and the circumstances, if he only listens to these men who have come from his house, he will inhabit a world where nothing miraculous happens and nothing miraculous will happen. And the result will be despair and his hope will crumble. But if... <clears throat> If, knowing the reality of death, Jesus, Jairus now looks at Jesus, something miraculous can happen. But it's not just Jairus who's confronted with the hopelessness of death, is it? They arrive at the house, and Mark tells us, verse 38, Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And so Jesus asks them, verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Okay, but given the age that they're living in, they've probably seen plenty of dead kids, probably some of their own. They've seen enough dead children to know what a dead child looks like. They know she's dead. And verse 40, they laughed at him. Have you ever thought it's a dangerous thing to laugh at Jesus, isn't it? And yet think of the world that they inhabit. It is a world where death is the end. It's our world, the world of scientific materialism, where there is no supernatural, a flat 2D world where music and art and beauty and the love of a father for his dying daughter have no ultimate meaning or purpose. A world in which, as C.S. Lewis put it, you see through everything until you see nothing at all. But Jesus sends them out. Wouldn't you have loved to be there? I would have loved to see how Jesus did that. Jesus sends them out and he went into the room where the girl was in verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita Kumi. And Talita is the Aramaic feminine form for lamb. It was a, it was a pet name for a, for a little girl. 
It's like calling her lambkin. Okay, imagine what you were called by your parents if they had a pet name for you. Or imagine what you might call your daughter. Poppet, darling, honey. And Kumi means get up. This is like a father walking into his little girl's bedroom, pulling back the curtains and saying, Poppet, it's morning. Time to get up. Because death is like sleep to Jesus. In verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And they are standing there amazed. What is Jesus thinking about? He's thinking about her still. Verse 43, he told them to give her something to eat. Because he's not just powerful, he is tender. He is greater than Jairus' greatest enemy. He is greater than your greatest enemy, death. But a new day has dawned. Hey, so someone fix us some breakfast. Now, Mark doesn't just tell us these stories because they are great stories, though they are. He tells them so that, like this woman and like Jairus, you and I would trust Christ. That instead of running after countless other things in search of shalom, in search of the world as it should be, in search of that inner wellness that this woman experiences, we too would look to Christ that instead of facing the despair and hopelessness of life and death in a 2D world where all there is are the material facts, we would find in him not just the promise, but the reality of life. And guys, you can. The prophet Isaiah foresaw the suffering of Jesus at the cross and wrote, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, the ultimate cause of every disease, the disease that afflicted this woman and the disease that afflicts our hearts is that sin, from the first sin in the garden right up to our sin today, has thrown creation out of order, and now disease and death stalk us. But at the cross, Jesus took it all upon himself, so that in its place, as Isaiah says, he might bring us peace, the shalom that we all long for. Because what happened in Jairus' little girl's bedroom is just a foretaste, isn't it? It is just a foretaste. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Jesus' resurrection, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because it is in Christ's death and resurrection that all of us can find healing and life and peace. So guys, as we come now to the Lord's table, we come, as we said in that um, responsive reading from Isaiah 25, we come to the one who offers us a feast of grace. We come to the one who offers peace in place of endless searching. Just as he offered Jairus' daughter breakfast, 
He offers us now to come and feast on him. He offers life in place of death. And only one thing is needed, faith. So come, eat, drink, and believe and trust. Let's pray.